0: to shout. Uh, as you turn to Colossians chapter 2, I, I want to reflect for a moment, as I did when we were singing, uh, on the implications of the words, nothing is better than you. If we sing that this morning, and we truly believe that this morning, then what we have to conclude this morning is that there is nothing that can satisfy us more than God. Nothing on a screen, nothing in his creation, nothing anywhere. And so I think it begs us, calls us to ask the question of ourselves, What, in what, or rather in whom, are we seeking our satisfaction this morning? Our text for today is Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Verses 16 through 19 is what we will read, and we're going to go up through uh, the first half of verse 19 this morning, and then next week uh, I will preach the second half of verse 19. There is a lot there, but follow along with me. In fact, uh, I think what I'll do this morning is I'm going to start in verse 8 of chapter 2 as we read, because it is the context for 16 through 19. as he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that instructs us how to see to it that we're not taken captive by philosophy, how to let no one pass judgment on us, and how to, how to keep from allowing anyone to disqualify us. Lord, we pray that you would, as a church, give us sound doctrine, that we would think rightly about you. We would think rightly about your word, that we would have high and lofty views of you and of what you have done for us and of your word, and that we would, uh, we would live it out in our daily lives. Lord, may we not uh, merely ever be caught in the trap of thinking uh, our own personal discipleship is enough, but Lord, may we be quick to evangelize, quick to share the gospel, quick to reach out beyond these four walls and to call people into fellowship and and relationship with you. Lord, forgive us uh, for the sin of, of keeping our mouths shut when we should be bold with the gospel. Lord, we pray for uh, our our sister church in the CV Northwest, Bethel, uh, in Milton Freewater, and as they will need to begin a, a search for a pastor here soon, we pray that they will uh, that they will have great wisdom that you will give them uh, patience uh, and and wait upon your timing. Lord, we pray for John and uh, his family and ask for your provision for them and your care for them in this time. Lord, we pray that that church would uh, continue to herald your word and the gospel and uh, and that they would, like us, not only uh, see people discipled, but reach out with the gospel. May we both uh, be found proclaiming your word, not only to ourselves, but to the world until you return or call us home. Lord, we pray for our missionaries, Skip and Ruth. Uh, we thank you for the new, uh, three new teachers that they have at the, the Bible College, and we thank you that their uh, renovations are completed there as well. Lord, we thank you for their excitement, and we join with them for their sons in their excitement for their sons' wedding this coming July. Lord, we pray with them and ask, as they are asking as well, that you would continue to provide for them, that they would be able to pay the salaries of the teachers that they have there. And Lord, as they're coming to the U.S. in May, uh, we just pray that they would have a, a restful and joyful time, that they would, uh, that they would uh, be encouraged and strengthened in their time here. But Lord, we also pray for Ruth's medical evaluation that she'll have while she's here as well. And Lord, I don't know what's going on there, but you do, and we just ask for her health. Lord, we pray for the Mayhews as well today, as their uh, pastor has been diagnosed with cancer and is now on hospice, and as that church as well will be seeking to, uh, to have a new pastor We pray that you would uh, just give that church great peace and hope and confidence in in this time and in you. Uh, Lord, we pray for their pastor's family, that you would just give them um, as much joyful time together as possible, uh, and that you would use even this opportunity to glorify yourself and to spread the gospel. Lord, let the word sound forth from us. Give us open eyes to see the truth of your word, and give us soft hearts to receive it and to obey it. And we ask all of these things for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me, I have a tickle in my throat that I just cannot shake this morning. January 2nd, or 22nd, rather, 1944, the Army formed the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Uh, This unit was uh, comprised of 82 officers and 1,023 men under the command of Colonel Harry Reeder. This unit's existence, uh, though it was known about before then, was classified until the 1990s. And their job was deception. They used rubber tanks that could be picked up and carried by one man. They used canvas trucks that they could quickly change the insignias and the, the, the unit patches on to make it appear to the Germans in World War II that we were able to move a tremendous amount of troops much faster than we could. They used, uh, at the time, what was cutting edge technology to project sounds of war up to 15, that could be heard from up to 15 miles away. They, they, would, uh, they would go out at night and move all of this equipment around so it, and paint, uh, including some very famous artists were recruited into this, uh, this unit as well. And, and, and all of it was done to deceive the Germans into thinking, one, that we were lined up somewhere that we weren't, two, that we had more uh, equipment to fight than we did, and three, that we could move much faster than we really could. They had all kinds of uh, code and fake radio chatter that they would use uh, and and that would be intercepted as well. And their job was deception. All for the purpose of deceiving the German army into focusing on places and on armies that were not real. They set up on D-Day. Uh, to make uh, the, the Germans believe that they were going to be uh, attacking from somewhere other than they, where they were in France. And all in all, they, they went on 22 or took part in 22 campaigns, some being very, very close to the front lines. Distraction can be very, very effective, can also be very, very dangerous, In the past weeks, as we've worked through uh, Colossians 2 here, Paul has been calling us to test everything we see and hear and read and to make sure that nobody takes us captive through what is not true, to not be taken captive by philosophy that is wrong or empty deceit, but to know the truth in Christ, to walk in Christ, and to stand firm in him. And just in case you have not been watching the news, uh, there is a spiritual battle going on around us. A battle for hearts and minds. And the battle is raging. It is at a fever pitch. Will we trust God or won't we? Is it God who defines us or do we define ourselves? Does God even exist? Well, today, in this text... Paul calls us not to get distracted by what doesn't have any substance. Not to get distracted by, by rubber tanks that have no uh, substance to do any harm. Or not to fall for the fakes. Shadows are images of the real thing, but they have no substance. Our eyes and our hearts are, are easily drawn there. we we quickly give our attention to those things. Sometimes we fall for those tricks, but as we can see here in verse 17, sometimes the things that we give our attention to, they're really just shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's a tremendous difference in the effectiveness and the power of a rubber tank and a real tank. And there is tremendous difference between the shadows of things That that are images of the real thing that pointed to Christ, but there is no substance to them. And and so, here in this text, Paul gives us two more commands, two more imperatives. The first one you can see is in verse 16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. This is not to say that we, we can never be taught, this is certainly not to say that we can never be corrected. It is not to say that we can never confront sin, but it is to say that we are not to let people judge us based upon the wrong things, based upon the shadows and not the substance. And the second term, uh, verse nine, or 18, I'm sorry, is to let no one disqualify you. This word was uh, a word used in, in sports uh, even at the time, and it was used of a referee calling somebody out. The image here would be like an umpire in baseball calling a batter out after three strikes. You, you are out. You are disqualified. You can no longer participate in the game in this way. Falling for the tricks of what has no substances substance, the image of what is real and not the substance of Christ, calls us out of the game. It renders us completely ineffective as Christians. We cannot lose our salvation any more than the batter who is called out by the umpire is off the team. We can't lose our salvation, but we can be rendered ineffective and useless to the kingdom. For believers, it is disqualifying. The danger is that for unbelievers among us, maybe those who are coming to hear the gospel, maybe some even in this room who believe themselves to be saved but are not, it is damning and dangerous. And so we have to be very, very careful not to fall for these tricks and focus on the wrong things. And so today in our text, I want us to see two steps to being an ineffective Christian. Two steps to being an ineffective Christian. And the first, I think Paul tells us, is to focus on the wrong things. To focus on the wrong things. Like the German army distracted by what isn't real, we get easily distracted by what has no substance, by what cannot satisfy our souls, by by what cannot provide any good for us. And Paul gives two lists here of the shadows that take our attention off of Christ. Both of them have to do with what we believe makes us acceptable to God. What is it that makes you acceptable to God? Is it the way you eat? Is it what you drink or don't drink? Is it where and how you worship? Is it the way we baptize people? Is it the way you spend your free time? Uh, what, what makes you acceptable to God? Is it the fact that for 27 years you haven't missed a single daily devotion and prayer time? I don't know. The reality is, is if we ask the question, what makes us acceptable to God, and answer it with anything other than Jesus Christ, we've given the wrong answer. Everything else is a shadow. It's it's an image that that shows us the reality, but the substance belongs to Christ. There is no power in a shadow. There is no power in what we eat or what we drink or what where we worship or how we worship. I'm not saying those things don't matter. We're gonna see today that they very much do matter. But the substance, verse 17, belongs to Christ. I'm gonna make a bold statement. It is not faith that saves you. I saw heads come up really fast. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who saves. Now we receive that grace when we place our faith and trust in him. But we are saved by grace through faith. Not by faith through grace. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We are saved because we, being sinners and deserving death, have a Savior who died in our place. Who, being perfect, ransomed us from sin and death. We are saved by nothing other than Jesus Christ. Yes, faith and repentance are necessary in order to receive that salvation. But on that day when we stand before God and are welcomed into the fullness of his kingdom, it will be on the merits of Jesus Christ and not on the merits of our faith. And it's why faith in the wrong thing cannot save us. It's why all spiritual roads don't lead to Rome, so to speak. It's why we can't place our faith in a wrong God and still be saved. Because it is not faith that saves us, it is Jesus Christ. And so to focus on the wrong things is, is a, a great distraction. And so as we think about what it is that accepts us or, or that causes us to be acceptable to God, we can come up with no other answer than Jesus Christ. But the first distraction that causes us to focus on the wrong thing is acceptance through personal practices. Acceptance through personal practices. I believe that's, there we go. Uh, Look with me at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. I think what Paul is referring to here is Jewish dietary laws. You You can't eat pork. You can't eat catfish. If you like to fish and if you like catfish, go to Israel and fish the Jordan River. They're huge and they're everywhere because they're unclean. You can't eat them. And so I think Paul is referring here to to Jewish dietary laws. See, the, the, the commands that God gave the Jews of what they could and could not eat, it was to separate them from the world. It was to make them peculiar and odd. It was to make people go, what is it that's going on here with these people? But it never had anything to do with making them acceptable to God. And so Paul begins here to, to, uh, to address the, the fundamental lie that, that the way we, we organize our lives personally makes us acceptable to God. God likes me better because I don't drink. Or God likes me better because I have the liberty to drink. God likes me better because I homeschool. God likes me better because I public school and I don't pull my kids out of the world. God likes me better because I private school and I pay for a Christian education. Whatever, we can insert anything in here. Israel thought it was more acceptable to God because of its practices. And we must be very careful not to do the same. Are you tempted to believe that God loves you more or less for what you do? For your personal religious practices? Is God more accepting of you if you spend more time in prayer, more time in Bible reading? I pray and I read my Bible eight days a week. Keep up with that. This is what we do in our own hearts, right? Does God love you more if you give more? Can you be good enough to earn God's favor? Do your children see you resting in what Christ has done or striving to earn his affection? This is not to say that God can or cannot be pleased with our personal practices. He certainly can be pleased or displeased. But he is not more inclined to accept us or reject us based upon what we do. And so one of the first things that distracts us, that can easily render us ineffective in the Christian life is to believe that that God accepts us because of our personal practices. The second is, is like it, and that is to think that we gain acceptance through our church connections through our church connections. You can't really see this so much in the English, but in the Greek, uh, food and drink, and then with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, are very clearly two separate lists. And so the first is personal. My own personal habits of food or drink uh, can distract me into thinking that God accepts me more or less because of what I do. But secondly, we can see that that maybe uh, we believe that God accepts us more or less because of our church affiliation. Uh, When Paul says here with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, he's talking about Jewish religious practices. There were seven festivals uh, commanded in the Old Testament that every Jewish family was supposed to uh, celebrate. Three of them, uh, they were commanded to go up to Jerusalem for. Uh, new moon, the Jews used a lunar calendar and there were sacrifices that were to be offered at the beginning of every month. And, and then, of course, the Sabbath is uh, Saturday, a day of, of rest. Sometimes we might, think, we might be tempted to think that our acceptance comes through our church connection. We're better than others because we worship on Sunday and that's the Lord's Day and that's the New Testament pattern. Or we're better because we worship on Saturday, and that's the Sabbath, and that's the day that it was commanded. We're better because we follow the Daniel diet and don't eat meat, or are vegans or vegetarians, or or who knows what else. We are quick to think that I'm affiliated with this church, and we baptize believers and not babies. We have one service and not two, or we have two services and not one. We're focused on outreach. We're focused on discipleship. Are you tempted to believe that God finds you more or less acceptable because of the church to which you are connected? The church doesn't save you, Jesus Christ does. It's not our connection to any church that saves us. Being connected to a church is commanded of every believer. It is not optional in the New Testament, and I'm astounded to hear how often Christians say that that they think the local church is unnecessary. Next week, we're going to see why it's so important. If If I can be really honest, I've preached on sex, I've preached on money, I've preached on gender roles, and I've never been more nervous about preaching a sermon than preaching the importance of the local church in COVID next week. I'm, I'm serious. It's not a joke. Because some people are offended if you say that, that you should be in church, and some people are offended if you, that you say you shouldn't. I've never seen the church more divided over matters that have nothing to do with what's in Scripture. W-w- could we all, can I plead for a moment... That what I'm going to preach next week, I'm preaching because it's what comes next in the text. Can we all commit ourselves now to submitting to the word of God? Because I personally believe that a lack of personal submission and obedience to Jesus Christ is far more dangerous than COVID. But I'm worried about next week. (laughs) So pray for me. The church isn't what saves us. We're saved by Jesus. A denomination isn't what saves us. Baptist, Presbyterian, Community Church, Assembly of God, those are all other denominations, by the way, not other faiths. And I can think of examples of, of all of them that are, are good and not good. You're just as likely to find a Baptist church that is gospel-less as you are any other denomination. If they get the gospel right, they're a true church, but no church saves you. We are saved by Jesus Christ and, and his death and resurrection. And again, I would draw us back to verse 17. It is because all of these are personal habits and our church affiliation. They are shadows. They are images of the real thing, but the substance belongs to Christ. The ghost army was, was, was the shape of the real thing, but it didn't pack any punch. It had no power. All of those things, they, they might move us into places that are closer or further away from Jesus. But in and of themselves, they pack no power. It is Christ who has the power to save. It is Christ who has the power to, uh, to, to transform. Th- these things that they point to, they never had any power to save. They just, as I've said, pointed to. Uh, the shadow is the shape of the real thing. How are, were these things, uh, the shadow? Well, they sacrificed lambs regularly, but Christ is the lamb who was sacrificed for our sin. They had feasts and festivals and ate bread, but Jesus Christ is the bread of life who came down from heaven. They rested on the Sabbath, but Hebrews tells us he himself is our Sabbath rest. They celebrated the Passover faithfully every year, but he, 1 Corinthians, is our Passover lamb. The first way to be rendered ineffective as a Christian is to focus on the wrong things. To focus on your own personal practices, your own church affiliation, and rather than on Jesus Christ. When we keep our eyes on him, everything else comes into line. The second way to be rendered ineffective as a Christian is to follow the wrong people. Is to follow the wrong people. Verses 18 and 19. Look what Paul says Here, having shifted from our own personal uh, matters, he says, let no one disqualify you, let no one call you out, let no one remove you from the game. Who are these people who remove us from the game? They are those who insist on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, who is Jesus Christ. I think cable TV, radio, and the internet, YouTube have all served in some amazing ways for the spread of the gospel, but they have served probably nothing, uh, nothing in human history has probably served the propagation of false gospels and false Christs and false teachings following the wrong people more as well. There is more opportunity to be disqualified now than ever before. And it's, a, it's kind of a dangerous and scary time to be a pastor, because in one sense, we want to warn, I want to warn you against, against those who, who might trap you and disqualify you, and in another sense, we kind of get offended when we name names. Paul in Scripture was not afraid to name names. I don't want to be a name-namer all the time, but there are really some dangerous people out there. There's more opportunity to be disqualified by following the wrong people and reading the wrong books than ever before. And so here in this passage, Paul gives us five ways to spot a false teacher. Five ways to spot a false teacher. And I want to share those with you today. Number one, what does a false teacher do? Number one, they focus on you. A false teacher will focus all of his time and attention and effort on you. Look with me again at verse 18 let no one disqualify you assisting on asceticism what is asceticism it is it is a, a self denial it is you know um think of these like uh hermits who lived out in the desert i i i don't eat i don't drink i don't smoke. I don't go with girls who do. I don't watch movies. I don't play cards. I don't have Netflix. I don't have a TV. I've never been on the internet. You name it, whatever you want. There, we, it is this, it's this self-denial That causes me to believe that that somehow I'm more acceptable to God. You can see how this connects back to the first idea that we talk about. But this is a really strange word to translate here. Because the the word behind asceticism in the Greek is the word that normally gets translated humility. Let no one disqualify you insisting on humility. Well, that doesn't make sense. So we can't translate it humility. The word has more meaning than that. The the picture here is a false humility. Humility. Because see what happens when I begin to deny myself those things and focus on myself and what I do and my practices and look how humble I am. It's really just pride. I'm better than you because I do or I don't. I'm better than you because I, 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 I deny myself more. It's, asceticism here is simply the idea that self-denial will make you more acceptable to God. God. Problem is, it really is just rooted in pride. Pride that somehow you can be good enough on your own without Christ to like you. False uh, false teachers will focus primarily on what you need to do and not primarily what Christ has done. They may assume the gospel, but you'll never hear it. Never wanting to offend, they'll they'll fill the airwaves with how to have your best life now. How to have your best marriage. How to be the best businessman you can be. The road to hell is paved with successful businessmen who had great marriages. What good does it do you to profit your marriage or your business but lose your soul? Why seek your best life now when Jesus was pretty clear that in order to gain your life you must lose it? False teachers will be happy to let you be at the center of your own universe. True teachers will focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Secondly, false teachers will entertain low thoughts of God. False teachers will entertain low thoughts of God. Paul goes on here in verse 18 from saying, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or false humility and the worship of angels. Uh, one of the heresies that had infiltrated this area at this time, and we've talked about it a little bit, is that, that God had divided himself up into lesser gods. But in this false humility, uh, the, the, they were being taught that if you worshipped angels, you, you were doing well because that was, after all, humble. Oh, I'm not good enough to approach God. I'm not good enough to, to come into his presence. And so i got to go through angels or uh, maybe saints or, or whoever it, it is that we might uh, put in the way between us. This is expressly forbidden in Scripture. There's a host of verses, but Matthew 4.10, Jesus clearly tells Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Revelation 19.10, when an angel shows up to, uh, to the apostle John, John says in Revelation 19.10 that I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We can't worship angels. There's, There's nothing humble about it. There's nothing biblical about worshiping angels either, or praying to saints, or any other false form of worship. It has been common in our, uh, it just amazes me how much a society that wants to deny the existence and authority and power of God is happy to talk about angels. Don't call me to worship God, but I've got a guardian angel, and he's looking out for me. We can't do that. We must never entertain low thoughts of God. We must entertain high thoughts of God and of Jesus Christ and like Hebrews instructs us to through Christ come boldly before the throne of grace. There is no real humility in worshiping angels. In fact, I would say it is just prideful as well because it is saying that God's word does not know better than me. I've got a better way and therefore I'm going to do that. False teachers will be happy to focus on you. They'll be happy to entertain low thoughts of God. And thirdly, they they will follow visions and not the word. They will follow visions and not the word. In verse uh, 18, Paul finishes this verse by saying that, that they go on in detail about Visions. They go on in detail, on and on and on, about what they have seen. There are many churches that follow this kind of leadership, and many of them are very, very popular today. On K-Love and Air One, from Hillsong to Elevation to Bethel, these churches are founded upon proclaimed visions of their leaders. Hillsong regularly takes Sundays to do nothing but hear the visions that their pastor is receiving from God. Elevation Church started when Stephen Furtick claimed to receive a vision from God. Bethel, well, that's just a hot mess. There are women's devotionals, that popular women's devotionals, that claim to exist because the author had a growing dissatisfaction with the word of God and wanted more. And so now you can hear Jesus through her. And she writes in the first person for him. Examples abound. But 2 Timothy 3.16 is clear. As we look at the pastoral epistles, the charge of the pastor is to preach the word because it is sufficient to reprove, rebuke, correct, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that is a term in scripture that is specifically reserved for church leaders. It's drawing back on Ezekiel as God calls him the prophet, the man of God. It is expressly reserved for church leaders. And when Paul says that scripture is profitable and useful and and that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, all you need is the spirit of God and the word of God. You don't need visions. The Bereans in Acts chapter 17 were called more noble because when the apostle Paul came to them and preached the gospel, they went back to their own Bibles and searched them out to see if it was true. They were more noble for it. The scriptures are the final and authoritative word of God. I do not have time today, but Genesis through Revelation is very, very clear, and I'd be happy to line this out for anyone, anytime, on what one must do in order to claim to have received visions and words from God. And it's not it's, not a, it's, it's all over scripture. I'd be happy to share that. And none of these pastors who are out there proclaiming dreams and visions and prophecies are doing the things that a prophet of God must do. False teachers follow what comes from within them. But the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Truth does not come from within us no matter what Disney wants to tell us. Truth comes from a book, the word of God. And false teachers will be happy to lead you in distracting you from effectiveness in the Christian life by focusing on you, by entertaining low thoughts of God, and by, following, and by calling you to follow them and their visions rather than the word of God. Fourthly, they're confident in themselves. What does this all add up to? Again, verse 18 Uh, That that after all this, that they go on in details about these so-called visions that they've supposedly had, and the result is that they are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. All of this adds up to being puffed up. Any church leader who believes he is up to the task of ministry is out of his right mind and in his sensuous mind. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10 First Corinthians, he who plants and he who waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. No pastor, church leader, fellow believer, growth group leader has ever changed you in the slightest degree. Maybe God has used them. I used to build cabinets. And I worked for a guy who was an incredible cabinet maker. Not once did anybody ever walk into a house and say, look at what that saw made Look at what that sander did. It's never the tool that gets the credit, it's the craftsman. We're just tools in the hands of the master craftsman. We should never be confident in ourselves. It is not our abilities, it is not our gifts, it is not our talent, it is not the winsomeness of who we are, but it is the Spirit of God using the Word of God who changes people. And so any church leader who is confident that they are up to the task is dangerous Lastly, they don't cling to Christ. Verse 19. They, being puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, are not holding fast to the head. We must preach Christ, sing Christ, pray Christ, see Christ in the ordinances. Oh, church, demand of me, demand of your elders, demand of your pastors, your growth group leaders, your adult Bible classes, demand to see Christ. Be satisfied with nothing less than Christ. Cling To Christ, insist that every message and everything we do focuses on Christ. Christ and the gospel of what He has accomplished for us should never be absent from anything we do or say. We cling to Christ. The picture that came to mind as I I thought of this was we've all seen it in a movie, right? Where somebody's about to fall off a cliff or a ledge or a top of a building or out a helicopter, I don't know. And somebody, far more miraculously than they're able to, just grabs onto them and clings, holds on, waiting to pull them up. Who are we in this analogy? We're not the ones on the sure footing are the ones hanging over the cliff. And praise God that Christ will lose none of those who God has given. That he is powerful to save, that he will never let go of us, he will never drop us, we will never fall, he will never fail. But we as a church must cling to him like we are dangling over the edge of a cliff and hanging on for our lives. In those moments, we don't get distracted by shadows. You don't grasp for the shadow of Christ's hand. You grasp for Christ. And so we must, in all things, insist on him, cling to him. And next week, as we finish out uh, verse 19, we will see what happens to a church that clings to Christ and to each other. Lord, thank you that our salvation is not dependent upon us. It is not dependent upon the measure of our faith. It is not dependent upon the sinlessness of our lives. But that you are powerful to save. That you will not let us go. That you have called us and loved us. And as we're told in Jude, you keep us for eternity. Lord, you hold us fast. May we never get distracted by things that have no substance. But may we keep our eyes on Christ and him crucified. May we demand to hear and see him. May we never be satisfied by anything but him and in him. And may we never think that we are up to the task, but that we would have our great confidence and hope and boast in Christ. And that you would do unbelievable things through us for it. Let us never entertain low thoughts of you and low thoughts of your word. Let us not settle for, uh, for visions when we have your word right in front of us. You have, as we're told in Hebrews 1, revealed yourself to us through the prophets and your son. And may we see you there and have great confidence there. And may we call others to cling to Christ as well for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name.